0: Peace, we Welcome back to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast, and today, welcome to Wrexham. On today's show, we go to Wrexham, the town in North Wales that has become a soccer mecca due to a blend of its rich history as home to the third oldest club in the world and a recent injection of Hollywood with Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney buying the club. We talk with Sean Harvey, the advisor to the board at Wrexham AFC, and a highly experienced football club and league CEO, to discuss how teams can have success on and off the pitch. Sean is the CEO of Wantaway Limited, where he advises football clubs, organizing bodies, and companies on all things related to the business of football. His current clients include Wrexham AFC, FIFA, Inner Circle Sports, and Macron. He's taken his experiences as the MD at Bradford City FC, which he led to Premier League promotion, the CEO at Leeds United, and the CEO of the English Football League to Wrexham, where he and the team are working to secure promotion back into the Football League and working on bringing a successful club back to the town of Wrexham and they are well on their way to building a global brand in a number of respects. They are performing well on the pitch. They've created a show, Welcome to Wrexham, that has been a hit on Hulu. And their recent FA Cup match for Sheffield United was the most followed soccer game across ESPN's website and digital platforms in the US. Sean and I had a fascinating discussion about how clubs balance on the field performance and off the field business success in a world where the evolution of entertainment and social media have turbocharged the concept of monetizing engagement, how important it is to think about the community when investing in a sports team, why Sean believes the Wrexham effect has been a huge driver of success for their club, and how lifting up a club financially and on the pitch can create tremendous economic and social benefits for the town that they play in. Thanks, Sean, for coming on the Alco's mainstream podcast to welcome us to Wrexham and share why this has been such an exciting and impactful project that we can all learn from. It's always sunny in Wrexham. We hope you enjoy. John, welcome to Wrexham. I mean, the Alco's mainstream podcast.
1: Welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you.
0: All right. It's great to have you. And what an exciting weekend for Wrexham and the club. You go up 3 2 in the 90th minute against a club that's 70 places up in the league pyramid above you. What's going through your head?
1: Well, I'm ecstatic. I'm beyond believing actually what I'm seeing at that particular time. Because, of course, the journey to that stage is we go down 1-0 in the first two minutes, lose two players to injury within 10 minutes, hang on for the rest of the first half and get a gradual foothold in the game, go 2-1 up, get an equaliser against us to go 2-2, 86th minute, 3-2 up, they're down to 10 men, and then, lo and behold the football gods' strike, and the 95th minute of the game, injury time, failed to pick somebody up from a corner, and it's a 3-3 draw.
0: So you're off to Sheffield United for the second leg of the FA Cup match. How do you feel about that?
1: Well, I mean, you know, it's it's obviously the replay. 1-0 down in two minutes and two players down in 10 minutes. We'd have taken a draw at that stage, but the draw seemed like a defeat in the end. With us getting so close, but that's the beauty of knockout sport and knockout football. We get another chance next Tuesday in Sheffield. So
0: I kind of want to capture this moment because it truly is for those who are not as familiar with the football pyramid in the UK. This is a David versus Goliath moment, right? Absolutely. Sheffield United's a team that will likely be promoted to the Premiership. They're a top club. They have ton of money, ton of high quality players, and you're a lower league team in what's called the national league used to be called non-league and you're competing with the best of the best. Tell us a bit about the background of all of this and what it means really zooming out, not just from a football perspective, which is incredible, but even bigger than that from a community perspective, from a business perspective.
1: The gap between the clubs is massive and it's really difficult to try and come up with an exact comparison from us sport and i talked to ryan about this because the clubs that don't play each other aren't in the same competition and the, the nfl and all the other competitions there isn't this pyramid you don't get to play a proper game against somebody who is either substantially better than you or substantially weaker than you there's this real impact it, in the american sport of leveling the playing field And that's before we get onto the draft system. This is genuinely David versus Goliath in a competitive fixture. Not a pre-season game where there's an element of warming up. This is game on. This really matters. And that's what the FA Cup is all about. I think it's 734 non-league teams enter the FA Cup at the start of the competition... They're eventually joined by the 92 professional clubs in the EFL and the Premier League. We're in round four at this moment in time. There'll be 16 teams left by the time round five starts. So we've come through all that process. And as I say, it is the equivalent of a minor league baseball team taking on the New York Yankees. It's probably the best I'm going to get in terms of comparisons. So to be able to do that, It's great.
0: How do you think about that in the context of where this club is? On the show, Welcome to Wrexham, Ryan and Rob have said, the goal is to build a Premier League club. What does a result like this make you feel? Are you close? Obviously, you have to go up the leagues, but what
1: does this show to you? Well, it's interesting because you're right in what you said earlier. Sheffield United will be playing Premier League football next season. Everybody in the U.S. will see Sheffield United next season, locking horns on an equal playing field with Liverpool, Manchester United, Manchester City and Chelsea. So that's how big a game this was. But actually what others competing with Sheffield United in the FA Cup has probably achieved more than anything else is it's actually legitimised some of what we're doing. And taking us into the mainstream, which is very apt for the name of this podcast, of course. And what I mean by that is when Robin Ryan bought Wrexham in the National League, there was an element of novelty value. There was an element of this is this is different. And one of the things that we talked about really early in everything we were looking at was That actually, to be successful, we need to get into the mainstream as quick as possible. Because if your only notoriety is that you are different, then eventually you can't be different for too long. So you have to get into the mainstream so people can recognise what it is that you're achieving against a set of parameters that you're able to measure rather than just look on fondly, which is where we have been. So the Sheffield United game, if it's achieved one thing, well, if it's achieved two things, it's brought great profile for the club, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But what it has done is put us into the mainstream so people can now relate what it is that we're doing against a backdrop and a set of parameters that they can relate to.
0: Getting into the mainstream is so important for people to see what, a club is all about and what the story behind the club is. Obviously the Welcome Direction Show has done this, but it sounds like in talking to you, the Sheffield United match, it was on ESPN Plus. It was in prime time on the BBC One. What did that do for the club? What were some of the numbers behind that?
1: What is what it's done is all of our FA Cup games so far this season have been on ESPN plus, which can only be attributed to the popularity coming out of the documentary, because never before has ESPN covered a fourth-round qualifying game in the FA Cup competition. Their interest usually starts at the third round when the Premier League clubs come in. That's where the value is in the rights that they've bought. But actually, what Welcome to Wrexham's done is put another club into the profile. And of course, ESPN's coverage of the FA Cup was the first time that fans had been able to see the club live in the US. So they were able to maximise that first mover advantage. We don't get clear figures as to how many people have watched on ESPN+, and obviously streamers generally are pretty uh, secretive in relation to disclosure of viewing numbers, no doubt to increase their commercial negotiating position. But what we do know is that whilst it was on ESPN over in the US, social media traffic around it was massively high. What we do know is that on the BBC in the UK, at half past four, the prime slot on a Sunday for FA Cup football, its peak, five million people were watching the game. And there are five million people who haven't been attracted to the club just because it's welcome to Wrexham. They've been attracted to the club because of the FA Cup competition, the chance to see a giant killing, and this interest in what is going on in North Wales that everybody's talking about that's so different more people watch Wrexham versus Sheffield United on BBC than watch Brighton versus Liverpool earlier that afternoon.
0: That's a fascinating point because I think what you're getting to is the story and story leads into entertainment and sure there's a match on the pitch that's being played, but from a business building perspective, to some extent, this is an entertainment business. How do you think about that construct football or sport as an entertainment business? And how does that relate to everything you're building at Wrexham?
1: Sport has to be an entertainment for people to want to consume it. You can consume it in two ways. You either consume it in the media or you consume it live inside the stadium. Now, the one thing I'd want to be 100% clear on is that when we talk about entertainment in this context, it isn't scripted. This is Real live sport playing out in front of the people that are there watching it or watching it on TV. There's not a predetermined outcome. There's not a set of circumstances that have to occur during every single game. It is pure live sport. It can be good. It can be bad. And obviously, depending on whether you're supporting the home team or the away team, then your decision as to whether it's good or bad is probably directly opposed to the other teams. It has to be entertaining, and the more entertaining you make it, the more attractive it becomes. What we've been able to do is create an increased audience that's interested in that entertainment, and Wrexham Entertainment in particular. We've got the double combination of the product being attractive on the pitch, which is entertainment in its own right, and then the documentary creating added interest in that entertainment. Now, if the games weren't entertaining or rubbish, then people wouldn't watch them, not because they wouldn't get any value from it. The fact that we've been able to create this perfect storm of the football's attractive and worth watching, and there's a big story going on behind it as well, is the perfect storm. we sign the best players we can, The manager lines them up to play in an attacking way, which should be attractive, but it doesn't always work. We've set ourselves up to give us the best chance of being successful without any certainty of it, but now we have managed to do that, everything else that we've done, and the documentary in particular, means we can absolutely capitalize on that.
0: You're hitting on a really interesting point In sport, And I think you sit at the intersection of these two things with your background running Leeds United, Bradford City, the EFL, and now at Wrexham, where you sit between the product on the pitch and the product off the pitch. How do you think clubs marry those two things? How have you thought about this at Wrexham? Because to your point, both things need to be attractive. They feed into the business side and the business side creates sustainability. But then you also want to win too. So there's the balance of two really hard things that I think in some ways is harder than most businesses where you just have a product that you sell to a customer. They either like it or they don't and they buy it.
1: And it's difficult. I think first and foremost, you've got to win football matches to be successful. It's difficult to run the entertainment element if you're not being successful on the pitch. You know, football's an industry generally that on any given Saturday – if one team wins, the other one loses. And on occasions, neither of them win because it's a draw. You can't guarantee the outcome of what goes on the pitch. And, and in fairness, if you could guarantee it, it wouldn't be the attractive proposition it actually is. Because that jeopardy or uncertainty is actually what draws people into the football industry in the first place. People are interested because they want their team to win but don't know it's going to happen. If you knew you were going to win every single week, it doesn't actually work. You don't maximise the potential because it becomes boring. That uncertainty and that need to be there to witness what it is that's going to go on live is effectively the drug that gets fans going through the turnstiles. So winning games and the product being uncertain in its outcome are the two main features then the desire not to miss out on something that's really, really good because you want to say you were there or you witnessed it live. What people like I do is sit alongside that to ensure that at times where everything's positive, you take the maximum advantage. And if things are negative, you try not to lose any ground.
0: I think this gets into a really interesting nuance of building a football club, which you've kind of had to restart Wrexham. So I want to get into the history of Rexham. It's a storied club with a ton of history. You've then built this back up. And then I think this gets to the football side and some really interesting questions around what does a football manager in today's game with social media, with sponsors, with the entertainment aspect, how do they balance the on the field and off the field aspects of this? So we're going to go on a journey that you're going to lead us on. Starting with the history of this storied club, why Ryan, Rob, you decided to buy and build this team into what it is today. And then I think the nuances of what the club does on the pitch and off the pitch, I think is really interesting to unpack from a business perspective and a on the field product perspective. Let's start at the beginning for people who aren't as familiar with Wrexham or the show, Welcome to Wrexham, which I think does a great job of showing what you're trying to build and the history of the club. But what is Wrexham AFC.
1: Yeah, let's start right at the beginning. Wrexham is a small town, well, actually a city now, in North Wales. We are closer to Manchester and Liverpool than we are to Cardiff and Swansea. And, in fact, Wrexham sits seven miles away from the English border. So a lot of people in Wrexham are massively proud to be Welsh, but do consider themselves nearer to England than actually the capital of Wales and where they perceive that where most decisions are made from, most of which preclude advancement in the north of the country. As a city, Wrexham's got about 75,000 people. The county borough is around 200,000 people. And there are more sheep in Wales than there are people in the Wrexham area. The club was founded in 1864 and Wrexham is actually the birthplace of football in Wales. The Racecourse Ground was a racecourse before it became purely a football stadium and the first international that Wales played against Scotland was actually at the Racecourse Ground and it is that fact that makes the Racecourse Ground the oldest stadium in the world that is still used for hosting international football fixtures. The club, in short, has got massive history. It's got great tradition. It's got a really engaged local community. It's not a wealthy place. It's working class. Obviously, COVID, the pandemic, the crisis, have all meant the Wrexham struggled. And one of the key criteria when Rob and Ryan were looking for a football club is that they wanted to find a club that had potential to grow, a community that would significantly benefit from their investment into the football club, and equally wanted a club where the money that they were going to put in could actually make a positive difference rather than just allow a club to survive by paying off the debts of the club's previous activities. So all those factors are part of what Rob and Ryan were looking for in terms of buying a football club.
0: When it comes to some of those features, you talk about one of the oldest clubs in history and one of the oldest grounds where international football is played. Those are things that make for a great story. So one, how much of that factored into the story and the narrative that you could create around Wrexham, and two, how replicable is that for someone else who wants to purchase another club? Are these features so unique to Wrexham that doing what you all have done at Wrexham is possible in another case, or is it really
1: not? Those particular set of features are unique to Wrexham, but every stadium and every club has a number of unique features. If I was doing this podcast in relation to another club it wouldn't be the same unique features I was referring to but there would be a different group and yes Wrexham is different in that it can quote to be the third oldest club in the world the oldest international stadium and they're relevant because people can relate to them they can compare that with newer stadiums but ultimately it is replicable because each club has its own unique identity. Again, in the quick comparison with the US system, these aren't franchises. These are privately owned businesses. Each has the ability to grow itself and create an image for itself without having to have a concern for the collective. Each one's got its own unique features. People in Torquay will talk as fondly about their club as people in Wrexham talk about theirs. So the principle is... It is completely replicable. It's just that the story doesn't start in the same place.
0: On that point, though, is there something about the Wrexham supporters that you found to be so unique and different when it came to how they supported their club? And also then, not just at home, because I think there's a lot... That has been done for the town as a result of this. But then, how did you think about this from a global perspective? What would make people like me watch a Wrexham match? I watched the match. I was on a plane. I tried to stream it and through ESPN Plus. You're able to create this home, but also global brand at the same time.
1: And that is what Robin Ryan saw with the documentary. They've taken a small town North Whirlian club to the world, and they've done it. They've done it through a combination of their own image and profile which unashamedly we utilize for the benefit of the football club but they also did it through the medium of the documentary which again starts with their image but it's a case of then how they utilize themselves in the context of running a football club which has become so interesting to everybody else this starts with the image of robin Ryan and then finishes with how that is deployed again in the mainstream that's the global growth the local growth is probably as impressive if not more impressive because before robin Ryan's takeover the stadium was half full every week and now it's full every week and yes there are people like you michael who came over and watched a game because you'd seen the documentary but They are still a very, very small percentage of the actual overall attendance at home games. What Rob and Ryan have done is created a global footprint for the football club, but actually what they've done is they've brought harmony and united a local community behind one common aim, and that is the football club and its success. So there's not only of the winning hearts and minds overseas and internationally, they've actually won hearts and minds of the local community, who could have taken the view that they didn't like the microscope face peering in to their everyday lives, that they didn't like some of the way that w- Rexham was portrayed on the documentary. It was all true, but that doesn't mean you have to like it. But actually, what they've done is they've rallied behind this locally because they've seen the benefit that it's brought to Wrexham as well. So we found this really unique place where by portraying despair down on your luck, needing help, it's captured the imagination of why two Hollywood superstars would look to do that in the US. But we've done it in such of a way that it's not made people locally feel uncomfortable. And they're actually proud of what's happening in their city. And that could have gone horribly, horribly wrong. But because they are as personable as they are, and because they've kept the commitments that they are, and in no small part because we're winning football matches, this is all right. We don't mind being in the spotlight because the people of Wrexham and the community are the absolute genuine net beneficiaries of all this.
0: What was the approach that has made this so successful with people in the
1: town? I think generally it starts at a fairly low place, not a lot of aspiration, 15 years in the National League from the football club's perspective, and we need something to be happy about. So we had an audience that really wanted this to work. There was that element of disbelief. Usually if something's too good to be true, it usually is. But for the people of Wrexham, actually, this was too good to be true. And it is true. So everybody's now on this roller coaster ride. It took some time to achieve. The biggest issue was not being able to get Rob and Ryan over to Wrexham and the race course ground when they first bought the club. The only reason they couldn't get over here was not because they were too precious, it was the fact that COVID travel restrictions meant. They couldn't get here. They'd owned the club for effectively eight months before they set foot inside the stadium. And it's that type of issue that we've had to get over because people just wouldn't believe it was true or wouldn't allow them to believe it was true. Now the regular attendees at the race course ground, those questions never get asked anymore. But genuinely what you do need to do is to get people over that hurdle of not believing, of not wanting to believe what it is that you are telling them is in fact true and going to happen. It
0: feels like you all are incredibly invested in the club's success, not just on the pitch, but off the pitch as well. And one thing you've talked about is, sure, you want the club to be financially sustainable. It's had its issues in the past, as the show has highlighted. You're putting that in a good place and winning will help. But how do you measure success beyond financial means at Wrexham.
1: Well, and this is a starting point really of Robin Ryan's mission statement. There's two parts, unfilled success is easy to measure. Pick any newspaper, go onto any website and you'll find a league table. The further you are up that league table declares beyond any doubt how well you're doing because that's the measure. We've talked about it earlier. How do you make it relatable? Everybody knows if you're at the top, you're doing better than if you are at the bottom. But ultimately, Robin Ryan's real measure of success was as much how much benefit can they generate off the field. That benefit's not easily measurable. If people feel better in themselves as a result of the football club doing well, then that's a significant community benefit. The creation of self-esteem in yourself as a result of being associated directly or indirectly with the football club, in this example, is really, really difficult to measure. Rob and Ryan have made financial donations to local projects, but again, we've always got this absolute view on life where everything has to be converted into pound notes or dollars in the US to measure success. Sometimes the more accurate measure of success is how big a difference are you making to somebody or somebody's life or a group of people's lives that everything has to be a financial return or measured in that way actually takes away from what it is that we're trying to do. We've talked about investment generally. and Ultimately, the tradition, of course, is financial return, return on investment for shareholders. But actually, it doesn't have to be just that. We look at philanthropists, and let's hope I don't have to say that word again, invest in museums to bring pictures to allow people to look at because that brings them joy. Why shouldn't a football club be that picture for a lot of people on a Saturday afternoon? It's not about scholarships and new buildings at universities just because you studied there. This is a football stadium that carries the dreams and aspirations of a local community. We talked about things being replicable. Not everybody can have two Hollywood superstars, but take away their status as in Hollywood, and what they are, are two individuals who have made a significant financial contribution to help a community that they had no previous involvement with to make a positive difference in their lives. Now you don't have to be from Hollywood to do that. You just need to have the financial resources to be able to support that objective. So it is replicable, but might never be exactly the same. In fairness, if it was exactly the same, it probably wouldn't work. You have to carve something out for what suits your needs the person who owns the picture in the earlier example that's in the gallery has no idea the people that are actually looking at it, but does know that they'll all be interested. So why don't we see more of, and I think I now classify this as the Wrexham effect. I think the Wrexham effect is ultimately going to see wealthy individuals Who want to make a positive difference on the lives of people they don't necessarily know possible and that will change the way that football looks at itself, sports looks at itself, and there'll be a lot of people, if they do go down this route, will sit there knowing that they're making a real positive difference, which ultimately is probably what they set off in life after looking after their families at wanting to achieve.
0: You're hitting on a really interesting point here, which is impact beyond financial investment. But that ties into community. And this, I think, actually is very related to alternative investing or private markets, which is now enabling people through regulation or technology to turn customers or people who care about something or community into owners. To some extent, many of the Wrexham supporters are owners. The club is, to some extent, owned by a trust supporters trust they have some say in what happens they have some level of ownership in the club or just a feeling of ownership because they're part of the town maybe it's not financial ownership but they just feel a part of the club this is the case in many clubs in football across the world. How do you think about that concept of, this is truly community-driven investing where these people are owners, they may not own as large of a stake as Robert Ryan, but they care about it as much because they actually have a stake in the success of the club.
1: There's a world of difference between owning the equity in a football club and owning its soul. And the fact is that most sensible owners only ever look at themselves as custodians. They are looking after an asset that actually they own but really belongs to somebody else. It belongs to the fans and the supporters of that club. Because Wrexham Football Club will be in existence in 50 years, 100 years, 150 years. There will be multiple changes of owners during that period of time. Yet the constant factor will be the fans coming through the turnstile. Yes, they'll be different generations, but they'll all still be linked. So football owners are in reality custodians. They own the equity stake. That equity stake is theirs for them to move on. But when they do sell it, the person that they sell it to will only become the next custodian. It's because the football club and the equity will continue long after... The owners change.
0: I think you're bringing up a really interesting point. And it does feel like sport is at a bit of an inflection point because I do believe we're seeing the financialization of sport. You're now starting to see private equity funds, notably Redbird Capital bought AC Milan, Clear Lake and Todd Bowley bought Chelsea for large sums of money. You're talking about billions of dollars here. I think you're starting to see the institutionalization of investment in sport. What does that do? for what you just said, which is being custodians of a club and then passing it on. The two are
1: different. The owners of Chelsea, Todd Bowley, in the example that you've just used, he is the owner of the club in financial terms. He will sell at some stage. Obviously, there's a genuine belief by the nature of their investment that we'll see a significant positive financial return. I don't think the motives of investing in a Premier League club for financial return is the same as investing in a club that serves its immediate community, using Wrexham as the example, but there are many others. So financial return against social economic benefit, and the two have to match because if Chelsea aren't active and work well in their community, that will erode their fan base, which will create unease that at some stage brings pressure on the owners to move on, potentially before they're ready. As you've seen with the Glazers at Manchester United, you've got to get the balance, even if your primary objective of ownership is financial return. Because if you don't, the fan base that actually own the soul of the club, as I characterised it earlier will seek to achieve an earlier exit from the investment by the owner than they would normally seek to achieve, not allow them to return the maximum profit. Even those that are actually investing for the purpose of financial return have to invest into the community to keep the fan base together, if only to allow them the maximum period of time in their ownership to generate the biggest financial return. All the objectives are exactly the same. It's just your starting point that differs. And at the smaller clubs like Wrexham, we can be really, really clear, because Rob and Ryan wanted to achieve this, that actually the community benefit is more important to them than the financial return. In fact, they wanted to generate benefit. But there's clubs where the balance is a lot closer than that, but you have to run it in a balanced way to ensure you get the opportunity to meet your own objectives.
0: What's really interesting though is, while you all may be playing a different game at Wrexham, which is trying to benefit the community, but also have success on the pitch. To benefit the community, you have to have success on the pitch. That's going to help you go up leagues. That's going to help you earn more money through media rights, getting promotion getting more sponsors, et cetera. What's interesting about that is you still may create a fantastic business. Just you may have underwritten the business differently because when I hear you say, how do you retain the soul of the club? And that's what the fans care about. They have the soul of the club. When I think about some of these bigger clubs where the investors are presumably looking for a financial return, sure, they want to benefit the community, but they're really looking for a financial return. They're probably looking at it as, okay, what's the financial model and what does the DCF spit out? Do you think that investors who are looking at clubs, whether it's Wrexham or Chelsea or Man U, do you think that they can underwrite or create a model to properly or adequately price what the soul of the club looks like? Wrexham fans may be more passionate fans than some other club. How do you underwrite that?
1: Fans of each club are equally passionate. Because you can't care more than care. People ultimately may display it in different ways. But the beauty of football in particular is that your club is the most important thing in the world to you. It may not be the best, but to you, it is everything. And you can't get more than everything. You are in this position that everybody has to protect that everything. And if you protect everything... And successful, you can make that financial return. The balance always needs to be struck, but that balance applies in lots and lots of business and in alternative investments and private markets. There's always an element of you have to protect your customer base or your supporter base. In football's case, we're not doing anything different than ensuring that the customers still go through the doors of the favourite grocer and don't go somewhere else. Now, we have the advantage, of course, that if it's your club, it's your club, and you're not necessarily going to go and look and watch anybody else. But you can't abuse that. You still need those individuals on a growing basis that that football club means everything to them. We've got a captive market. The strongest clubs are the ones that have got the biggest captive markets and the biggest fan bases. But you have this ability to create loyalty, as well as maximize that that's already there. And that's what makes the balance of football clubs so important. And actually why you don't have to be a lifelong fan of a club to own it and to do it successfully. What you have to do is to respect those that are actually already inside it.
0: How do you think about the phenomenon of social media? impacting the ability for clubs to reach fans, tell stories in different ways to attract
1: different fans to a club. You've said points a number of times, and that's where I am on this one, because when I started in this industry, there used to be a thing called a newspaper exclusive, where you could work with a local journalist, and the first time anybody would find out anything is when they read it in the local newspaper, And that allowed you to control a communication channel that was way less sophisticated than those that exist today, but was arguably more effective because you could target everybody at the same time with one message. Whereas now, let's use the example of yesterday. We're signing a player from Charlton Athletic. We know the deal's getting done, and the story begins to leak at 3 o'clock, and rumour and speculation is rife. And the only reason rumour and speculation is rife is because it's been debated on social media. Back in the early days, even if people knew it was happening, they had no way of being able to tell the mass media and the world that it was happening because there was no communication channel of that nature. What we've always got to balance here is how do you use the opportunity to speak to masses instantly against controlling the message for maximum impact? Ideally, what you do is nobody finds out about anything. And in our case, you get Rob and Ryan to announce it to the world, and it's absolutely brilliant. And how much is it diluted by the fact that it's already been discussed elsewhere? Social media creates the interest in the club. It would be difficult to have achieved the growth in Wrexham Football Club without social media, because it's meant that the club has been attainable, it's been accessible by everybody straight away. There is a real balance to strike... What we've got to work out and master is how do we monetize that audience that we've now created. We can drive people to the club shop to buy shirts. We can't get many more people into the stadium because we're sold out every week, which is why we're trying to put another 5,500 seats in there. That monetization again, we've defaulted to this financial return. What we're seeing is we're measuring success not just in financial terms to monetize, but to socialize. Some postgrad students somewhere could put this in a far better way than I ever will do. But that socializing has a value, just doesn't necessarily have to be related to the financial return. Wrexham is delivering far more goodwill and positivity than it is financial return. It is related, though,
0: because you talk about success on the pitch helps build up the community, bring more profile to the community. What comes before success on the pitch, it's attracting top talent. You've gotten players like Paul Mullen from League One, Ollie Palmer from AFC Wimbledon League One, player from Charlton Athletic, another big club that at one point was in the Premiership. There's been a shift in social media that has brought more people to a club, because I think the balance of power is shifted from teams and leagues to the players. And then if players are able to monetize more because they have a big brand and they're playing at a big club with a brand, that's going to attract them to the club, right? So doing all the things you're doing helps you bring in the best players, which helps you perform on the pitch.
1: And there's no doubt what brings players to football clubs to start with is ambition and salary. You've got to be in a position where you can compete on a salary basis to bring the talent. Where the story makes a difference is it helps them justify to themselves leaving League One to go and play in a League Two, two leagues down. But the starting point is as good a story as we can tell, unless we're in a position to employ them on financial terms that they find attractive... The story is actually nearly irrelevant because not many people will work for free, whether that's in football or any other walk of life. You have to put yourself in a position to better financially attract the individuals and then the project, not my favourite phrase, but the project ultimately is then what enables that justification to allow it to happen. Look at Paul Mullen, Paul's the example you used, He's a football that walks around with a smile on his face. He walks around with a smile on his face because he feels a real belonging to the place that he's playing football. How did Rexon sign him because, logically, it shouldn't have happened? Well, it happens for two reasons. The first one is that we could provide a financial package that attracted him to come to the club. The bigger one with Paul in particular was that lifestyle choice that he could actually live at home with his family and play football rather than being away from his family to play football. And to him, that was the most important part. For others, we will no doubt just do down to financial return. And if that's the case, so be it. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. He's got equally as much merit as any other version. But if you can harness both those two together, attract your story, financial reward, and the profile that's now at Wrexham Football Club that's giving players opportunities they would never have had before, then that's when you get the cocktail that creates Wrexham Football Club. You raise the point about, is it teams or is it individuals? Well, ultimately, players need colleagues, as part of that team. The team being successful aids the profile of the player. And we're in a position now where the players are able to benefit as a result. So that's win-win. It is a measure that has to be really carefully managed though. Because if you go to some of the bigger clubs. And let's use Paris Saint-Germain as an example. Neymar and Messi have more endorsement deals than some of the individuals that they play with on every Saturday. Yet if those other individuals didn't play on a Saturday, and Neymar wouldn't then have the base to be able to raise their own profile from. So you do have to keep the balance. And it's a lot easier at our level to be able to do that than at the PSG level that I've just used as an example. Social media creates a platform for individuals to express themselves beyond that that they have ever been able to do before. It equally, of course, then needs to be managed very carefully because for all the good it can do, one false step and it can go exactly the other way.
0: I think there's a few things in there. One is that, to your point, traditionally, teams would have one or two times per week to engage their fans, match day, and maybe the print media, but very controlled. Now, engagement and monetization can be different because the increasing use of technology, social media, et cetera, to your point, to the advantage. What do you think this means for both managers and roster construction, and then for the players as well? What I mean by that is, do you think both managers and players need to have a different skill set than the players of the past? Because they are businesses themselves. Paul Mullen is Paul Mullen, LLC. Ollie Palmer LLC, they're their business entity. Absolutely. The skill set changes in today's world as a professional athlete and for a manager like Phil Parkinson has to manage different roster construction, playing players, making sure jerseys sell, all of that.
1: It's just the different skill sets that I needed 26 years ago when I started in this industry. The immediacy of information is to be harnessed for good and to be avoided for bad. You never know which variation it's going to be sometimes because we never have the benefit of hindsight. We never have the benefit of knowing what the outcome is before we start, particularly games on the pitch. Who knows in the replay whether we're going to win 4-0, lose 4-0? None of us know. What it actually makes you do, what those sort of uncertainties do, is actually make you compromise you compromise probably your 100% position for a 75% position because if you win, you win at 75%. That's fine. But if you lose, you only go down a bit. Whereas before, you probably went all in and you either made a fortune or lost a fortune. Social media means you can't take that type of gamble anymore if you're acting in a considered manner because you're open and exposed to issues beyond your control. Social media, immediacy of information, when harnessed correctly, is the modern-day tool that everybody has to use. Social media, not utilised properly, not managed properly, has the ability to bring things to an end quicker than ever before. And, of course, it doesn't always have to be true, and it doesn't always have to be fair. Do you think most sports clubs are equipped
0: to take advantage of the positives of social media?
1: Yes. They're a lot more equipped to deal with the positives of of social media than the negatives of social media because there is an element of nearly feeling indestructible at times. And that allows you to think, yes, everything's going right, everything's going well, we're cracking this, the world's never going to end... And in the football world, you lose three games. And the very people that were saying you were a genius are now saying you're a fool. Because their vested interest isn't as an equity shareholder. It's actually as an emotional shareholder. All they ultimately want to see is success on the pitch for their team and their club to be portrayed in the proper way. If you deliver that, you're popular. If you don't, you're not. Yet the person that's delivering the message, of course, can only be fully responsible for part of it.
0: It's an interesting point there, because I think if I make a comparison to business, a lot of companies, banks or consumer companies, will evaluate how much their customer is happy with the product with an NPS score. Do you think that NPS score is based on the wins and losses column? Because another nuance of what you say is that, sure, when you're losing, people may be unhappy, but they're still engaging. It's an interesting dynamic of they may be unhappy, but they're still going to engage emotionally on social media or with their friends or the talk shows, whatever. How do you think about that concept of football from a NPS score perspective like you put it in business? Yeah,
1: well, it's everything in reality because a lukewarm pie served at halftime on the concourse will generate probably one of three reactions the pie is always lukewarm and it's probably not great in this example just to record the pies at Rexham are good but in in this example but if we win then well unfortunately it wasn't the best it didn't quite work out but these things happen If we lose, it's a national scandal, should never have been allowed to happen, and everybody who's ever had anything to do with that pie should be sacked. And if we draw, it's probably a case of, you need to get this right if you're going to maintain my support, because they're on the edge. They've not jumped one way or the other at that stage, and that's the draw. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind the results on the football pitch are directly responsible for the reaction of the supporters to everyday issues. So it really all comes
0: down to, at the end of the day, how fans feel about the club and how the results are on the pitch. You've now been doing this for almost 30 years or so, maybe a little bit more, give or take, and, and you've been at multiple clubs, You've seen many wins, losses, and draws. What are some of the biggest takeaways that you've had from working at the club level, the Bradford Cities, the Leeds, both incredibly successful storied clubs themselves, and then working at the league level with the EFL that you've now brought to Wrexham?
1: The bottom line is you have to be true to yourself, true to the values that you set up with. Don't get too up if you win. Don't get too down if you lose. Because if you're delivering for the vast majority of people, they ultimately get themselves to a position where they work out why it's wrong or why it's right. Because they can relate to it. It's not like other industries where you don't need to understand guilt rates and everything else from from a banking perspective to have an opinion. You can have an opinion... Because it's your football club and you can relate and understand it. So you just have to remain consistent with what you believe. I seek no more publicity if we win than if we lose. Because that way you don't set yourself up for a fall. Because any industry where you cannot control the outcome, you have to accept that at some stage this might not go the way that you had hoped or you had planned or actually you had earned or deserved because some of the best football clubs and people that work around football clubs work at clubs that don't win every week and sometimes they never get the initiatives that they've started to realise their full potential that doesn't mean it was wrong it doesn't mean they were wrong it just meant it was never given a chance so my view has always been stick with the policy, believe in the process. If it's soundly thought through, even in the dark days, people will recognize it for what it is. And in the good days, what they'll then do is get on board with it. And ultimately, that's what will make the real positive difference. What does success look like to you for Wrexham? AFC. Well, so what does success look like? Promotion on the pitch, because that's what we've invested for. Ultimately, everybody else is trying to be successful and get promotion as well. But we've done and gone further to try and achieve that. There isn't a direct guarantee that the more you invest, the more that you will win, because that's not sport and that's not competition. But ultimately... The more you do invest, the better chance you should have, as long as you invest that money wisely. And it's probably no secret that the top three clubs in the National League at the moment are probably the three with the largest wage bills. But actually, the real success is seeing the club grow off the pitch, financially and commercially, but only to support the overarching ambition of making a positive difference in the community. So that's success. Success is commercial return for community benefit.
0: Sports really should be a community-driven investment. It's about building up the community in the place where you are, and maybe even outside. On that point, there's now more and more people, institutional investors, individuals, looking to invest into sports teams, football clubs. What advice would you give prospective investors who are looking at investing in and buying football clubs.
1: My advice is to be really clear as to what it is you're trying to achieve. There's a lot of cleverer people than me who have worked in the football industry for many, many years. Traditionally, the same mistakes tend to be made. I, when I started, did try to beat the system. What can we do that's different? And it's only when you've had a bloody nose a few times that you actually realise... There are uncontrollable elements of this. that It doesn't matter what you do. Ultimately, what will be will be. You can influence it, but you can't decide it. So any investor going into football, work out exactly what it is that you want to achieve. Have a look at what it is that you've got, not what you think it could be. And get yourself comfortable that you can achieve your objectives with what you can see in front of you. Because if you can achieve what you want to achieve with what you've got in front of you, then you're not going to disappoint yourself, whether that's financially or in any other different way. If you can then find potential to grow what's in front of you to help achieve your objectives, then ultimately you're going to win. If what you can see in front of you is such that you don't think it can change and it can't improve, then you've only got one way to go, which ends up meaning you make a loss. So my advice ultimately is be really clear with yourself what it is that you want to achieve. Don't leave yourself too much to do to achieve that by thinking to change what's there in front of you. And get yourself comfortable with that. Because if you do, you will have one hell of a ride. And it is an investment that will bring you rewards in a way that you can never imagine. The best example of that is Robin and Ryan. Because their rewards, and we've talked about it, they've done it to death nearly, aren't financial. But the community benefit is the test, as his promotion on the pitch. But you've got two people now that are living and breathing a small football club in North Wales, in Wrexham, that if they've been completely honest, they've probably never heard of before they bought it. I'm not going to say it makes their lives full, because they've both got lovely families, they've both got great careers... But what this has done has added something else on top of all that. But because it doesn't replace it, or nothing else is dependent upon it, they can fully enjoy it for what it is. So it actually helps put something in your life that you couldn't achieve in any other way. And that is what I believe in finishing, that the Wrexham effect of people of wealthy individuals investing into sports entities and sports clubs where the main beneficiaries of the local community will be one of the most fulfilling investments they will ever make because it will make them feel great with themselves and feel that they're making a real positive difference and there's no amount of financial return will ever ever match that.
0: That's a fantastic way to wrap up this podcast because sports is much more than just a game it's about involving the community sure there's investment but it's so much more and what it means to everyone involved i think you just captured incredibly well thank you thanks for coming on alco's mainstream podcast to share your story as well as the wrexham story which is now turning into a global story
1: i hope those that listen enjoy what they've heard and actually think through what options there might be for them outside the blindingly obvious.
0: I love it. Well, we should all hope for a Rex and promotion, first and foremost. Good. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about Alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stidgemore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day.
1: We're going-